Scandal and hilarity. Scandal because the audience thought that the artist had lost his mind. Hilarity because if he hadn't lost his mind, this must be some kind of a cruel joke. You can't be serious. This, this is what you spent two years working on. Are you kidding me? This cannot be the plan. Those were the two reactions the first time George Surratt showed this painting in the year 1884. This painting is called A Sunday Afternoon. It's painted on a huge 7 by 10 foot canvas. It hangs in the Art Institute in Chicago. See what George Surratt is doing here in 1884 is he's pioneering a new style of painting called pointillism. The artist doesn't use any brush strokes. There's no dabbing. There's no Bob Ross stuff. Instead, the artist just takes a very fine pointed brush on a very small blob of paint, gets up really close, and makes a teeny tiny dot. And he does that over and over again until he completes this master work. But if you were to stand up close, you wouldn't be able to recognize anything. You can barely tell what you're looking at. It's just this random smattering of smudges of paint and dabs that make no sense whatsoever. But when you step back a few feet and gain perspective, the whole picture comes back into view. Scandal and hilarity. Aren't you glad the artist knows what he's doing? I think life can be that way. Often from up close, life looks like this random smattering of paint dabs, this jumbled up mess of events and relationships, causes, effects, hopes and dreams, emotions and reality. But what do you do when your expectations and your experience don't line up? Maybe you're a parent and you've hit rough waters with your kids and you go, this this is what we waited for. Or maybe you're married and you're kind of happily married. There's distance. Don't really talk about it. And you go, this, this is what we fought for. Maybe you're not married and you'd like to be. Where's God in that? Why hasn't he delivered this big dream to you? Regardless of how or when we all hit these points where there's a yawning chasm between what we hoped for and what is. This disparaging disparity between our dreams and our realities. When we're in those places, we're left with a choice. Silently wonder under our breath if the artist has lost his mind, if he's playing a cruel joke on us. And so we become bitter. That's the road most often traveled. Or maybe we'll have courage to step back and gain perspective. This is week two of a four-week series in this obscure backwater book in the Old Testament called Haggai. And if you weren't with us last week, you're kind of jumping in midstream. That's okay. I'm going to catch you up. Here we go. Haggai is an old man with a very heavy message. It's 522 B.C. and Haggai is nearing 90 years old. As part of a group of recently returned exiles, Haggai has lived in Babylon for most of his life, and he's just getting back home into the promised land. Haggai's book is made up of four speeches spread out over four months. Last week, we looked at that first speech. 
the message of the first speech is basically neglect what God deems important and expect to be frustrated. That's the entirety of chapter one. You could sum it up in one word, priorities. We said that to keep our priorities right, we've got to remember what matters most. So today we're looking at the second speech. We're shifting gears a little bit. Today isn't about priorities, as you may have guessed. Today is about perspective. In order to keep our perspective right, we've got to remember what matters most. By way of quick review, God's people have just returned from over a half a century exiled in Babylon. They've walked 900 miles home to Jerusalem, only to find pretty much everything either neglected or destroyed. And so they spend 19 years making elaborate homes for themselves, material that if they valued what they said they valued, should have gone to God's house. And so in verse 9 of chapter 1, just to review, here's what God says. He says, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Do you hear the priority language in there? And so what do the people do? Skip on down to verse 14. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So that's chapter one. Very nice story. Yes? People get home. They aren't acting like they should be. God sends Haggai, they repent, and they start acting like God's people again. Everything is hunky-dory, right? Fast forward three weeks. People are working on the temple restoration with incredible dedication. Old toppled debris has been removed. The burned-out rubble from Nebuchadnezzar's siege against the city has been taken away. Overgrown brush and trees from half a century of neglect are cleared Workers have begun to lay the foundation, these big cornerstones being set in place and smaller ones being fit around, sweat from the hot sun, dust from the stone cutting in their eyes. You can almost imagine it, can't you? But as the dust settles on the construction site, some people begin to see the outline of what's emerging, and they're not happy. Some remember the glory of Solomon's temple, and they see the foundation for this new house of worship being laid, and they're silently wondering, is this it? This couldn't possibly be the plan. Maybe the artist has lost his mind. Join me in chapter 2, verse 1. In the, seventh day, or in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people, and say. Now, so this is what God wants his people to hear from Haggai. Get this, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So God asks three questions. Three very odd questions that compare the construction site to the temple that Solomon built, the one that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. 
So just a bit of context, Solomon's temple was built in 970 B.C., and it lasted almost 400 years until Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. It took 180,000 people seven years to build this temple. It had 285 tons of gold. That's like 100 minivans, weights in gold. It's like the Chick-fil-A parking lot times five. (laughs) It's a lot of minivans. 625 tons of silver. It was the highest point in Jerusalem. It housed all the wealth of God's people. And here they are with their handful of amateur construction workers and their wishful thinking. And God goes, isn't this pitiful? Now, why would God do that? It's like rubbing salt in an open wound. They're finally getting to work, doing what he told them to do, and then God vocalizes their misgivings. It's like a little league coach, right, who looks out on his team of eight-year-olds who are trailing in the bottom of the ninth, and he goes, hey, my team last year would have won this. You guys are not doing so good. You're never going to make it. Who was left among you who saw this thing back when it was what it was? Isn't it now so sad? God's not like that. Something you need to know, God never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. God asks a question because he wants us to understand what he is about to do. And it's always been like that, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam, where are you? It's not because he didn't know. (laughs) Cain and Abel. Cain, where's your brother? It's not because he didn't know. Even Jesus and the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Why are you so afraid? Do you not have any faith? Jesus knew their hearts. He asked for their benefit. In the same way, God knows what's going on in these people's minds. He's not clueless. He knows that while there is a small segment of people eagerly looking forward to the restoration of the temple, and they're working away, they're blowing and going, they're giving everything they have to this, there's a small number of people standing around going, maybe muttering underneath their breath in the back corner of their minds, in that little secret place that we all have that we know is not really secret, a good number of them saying, you know what, guys, this is not that great. Do you remember what was? You see what the guys down the road are doing? Look how small and insignificant this thing is. Maybe God doesn't know what he's doing. Sure glad I'm never like that, aren't you? The hilarious thing here is that God knows what the people are thinking. He knows the elephant in the room and he just puts it out there. Like I love that. Now can you imagine you're in Zerubbabel's shoes, sandals, whatever? He's the recently appointed governor of Judah. Okay? Like he's the guy responsible for leading his people. And then there's Joshua, the high priest. <laughs> How did these guys not get discouraged? Like, thanks, God, for the morale boost, right? What would keep these guys up up, up at night? What were they praying? How did this inform their view of God? You know, because as soon as they get back, and then there's like a little momentum happening, before the momentum even gets on track, the people start complaining. Like, that's a big departure from the history of God's people. Like, the entire Exodus narrative. Zerubbabel's name, get this, Zerubbabel's name means seed of Babylon. 
Not exactly the name that I would pick to inspire morale. (laughs) But as we'll see, to keep our perspective right, we've got to remember what matters most. So what happens next? Take a look in verse 4. Yet now, stop. Those two words change everything. Those two words make all the difference in this entire narrative. Even though this feeling is deep and raw and true and the situation around them looks bleak, even though this is the hardest thing they've ever done, yet now. And so what does he say? Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with my glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. In a move of tender, fatherly grace, God calls his people around him. And in this tone of quiet, strong confidence. He gets down on his knees, he looks his people square in the eye, and he holds their face, and he gives them all the confidence they need. Where does confidence come from? Right? I remember being a little leaguer, standing up in that batter's box, and like looking at this ball that's about to get pitched at my head. <laughs> Like, where does confidence come from? We go like, okay, it's down in here, right? Or like, you just got to like muscle up, right? It's coming, it's coming. You got to psych yourself up. This is where confidence comes from. God does something completely different. I want to put a magnifying glass over verses 4 through 9. In the face of their doubt, God gives his people three ways to keep their perspective right. Here's the first one. First way to keep your perspective right is to remember God's presence. Take a look again at verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. Work, for I'm with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Do not fear. So whenever you're reading your Bible and you come across something that's repeated, okay, like a little phrase or a little word or something like that, that's your little cue. Like God's trying to teach you something about himself, okay? And so what's the phrase that's repeated is a command in verse 4. What is it? He says it three times. Be strong. Or maybe your translation says take heart, right? Everybody do this. Put your hand out. If you're right-handed, put your right hand. If you're left-handed, do that one. And just make a fist, all right, and squeeze that sucker, right? White knuckle it. This is what this word means, okay? It's a strong word in Hebrew. You can put your fist down if you want. And then I think you're going to get angry at me. Like, so you, you make this fist because it's this idea of saying like 383 times in the Old Testament, God tells his people to be strong. It's this word that says, take hold of what I'm about to say to you. 
It's this physical word in Hebrew. It means like arm wrestling. It's this willful word. Interesting thing, that word standing in your midst, if you caught that, is the same word that the pillar of fire was standing in Exodus 33. The same land that Haggai's audience is standing on, the same desert they just walked through, the same sand that is stuck between their toes is the same sand that Moses walked on. Do you hear the Exodus imagery in here? God blows the dust off this book of forgotten memories and he draws like the most formative image of God's people. He's like, look, just like back then, I'm with you and I don't go anywhere. Before we move any further forward, we gotta hit pause and backtrack a bit because there's this little detail at the beginning of this text that we skipped over, but it's super important. When does this scene take place? Look back in chapter 2, verse 1, right? It gives you a very specific date. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month. Now, that's really significant. Here's why. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people celebrated three big festivals, okay? These three big festivals were times when people would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Families would travel together. They were a big deal. All three of these festivals are tied to a specific act of God in their past that teaches his people something about him, okay? So the first festival of the year is Passover, Passover. And Passover, if you know your Old Testament, you know that Passover is when God rescued his people out of Egypt and it centers around the sacrifice of this spotless lamb. Okay? And it teaches that no matter what, God will rescue us. That's what Passover is about, right? And if you know your New Testament, you're going, interesting, Jesus was sacrificed around Passover to rescue us from our slavery of sin. That's an interesting little thought, right? So Passover, God will rescue us. And then the second, the second festival was called the Festival of Weeks, and it happened seven weeks after Passover, okay? Festival of Weeks. And this is when God's people celebrate when God gave them the law at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, right? And now half of you are imagining Charlton Heston walking down a mountainside, right? What this teaches us is that God will give us everything that we need, so God will rescue us, and God will give us everything that we need. Then there's a third festival, Festival of Tabernacles. This one you don't hear much about. Festival of Tabernacles is when God's people celebrate when his presence dwelt among them in the desert, right? And so put all that together, there's three big theological truths. God, um, God will rescue us, God will give us everything that we need, and God is with us. Right? So you got Passover, you have weeks, and you have tabernacles. Now get this. Haggai chapter 2 starts on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. You get that? You get how important and significant that is? God deliberately timed the construction of this new temple to the exact day when the people are already thinking about the wonder of his presence. Like, isn't that incredible? You think God's behind this whole thing? And that makes their obedience that much more significant, but their attitude that much more heartbreaking. I mean, they're already saying, hey, you remember when God brought us out of Egypt and like we were scared to leave, but it's okay because God was with us. And then God gave us his law and it's great because God is with us. And then we had to move into the promised land and there were all these crazy tribes around us and we were super scared, but it's okay because God's with us. Like they know the story. They've been talking about it all week. They know the story. 
They know the plan, but they can't see any further than what's right in front of their faithless faces. And God's like, it's not about a building. It's about me. It's not about looking good. It's about me. It's not about expectations or scope or influence or whatever else you might think is important. It's about me. I want you so badly to believe that I am enough. Now, why is that important? Like, fun facts about festivals. Past provision enables present confidence. Past provision enables present confidence. Or put it another way, we don't reflect on the past to remember how great the past was. We reflect on the past to remember how good God is and always will be because he doesn't change. He doesn't leave his people because it's not what God does. And we are so stinking prone to forget that. At least I am. Here's what I do. Like, this is my reaction. Not everybody shares this one. When I get discouraged, when I get, you know, down and, and doubting and all that stuff, here's what I do. I turn into Eeyore, okay? And Mandy can tell you, like, I just get, like, really sobby and I just go, like, nobody likes me. Oh, my. That's just my thing. Some of you get angry, and that's cool if that's your thing. I just get Eeyore, right? And that's where I go. Because when we get doubts and discouragement and it kind of gets its way into our heart, we usually will find ourselves believing one of four lies, and here they are. And they're all tied to God's presence. First lie is God's presence is tied to what I see. Like things don't look good. This ain't going to go good. And so God must have left. Second lie that we find ourselves believing is that God's presence is somehow tied to what I feel. Like I'm scared, I'm anxious, I'm overcome, I can't deal with this. And so therefore God must not be in control and he must have bolted. Third lie that we believe is that God's presence is somehow tied to what other people say. Like, man, their opinion cuts so deep, I wonder if God feels the same way about me. Fourth lie that we believe is that God's presence is somehow tied to what I deserve. <laughs> like, I sinned pretty hard, and so, like, grace, well, it's a good idea, but God's very, very, very disappointed in me. If you find yourself slipping into any of those lies, here's what you need to know. You have a different starting point for understanding God's presence than God does, and that is a theological problem for you. Like everything else in God's economy, God's presence is given. It's not earned. And we want to earn it, right? I get that because grace is super hard to receive. Like, I want to go, God, I did really good, and now you're with me, right? And God's like, I'm, no, you are covered in the blood of my son. You are part of my covenant people. I am with you, period, because I don't change, and I don't go anywhere. That's the first way to keep your perspective right is to remember God's presence. Second way to keep your perspective right is to remember God's power. Okay? And you see these commands there in verses 4 and 5. He says, be strong, okay, work, okay, fear not, gotcha. Why? Verse 6, take a look. For, right, that's your little cue. He's going to tell you why he's about to do something. For, thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake the nations so that the treasure of nations can come in. We'll get back to that in a minute. And I will fill the house or this house with my glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory, I mean, you see what God's doing here. He's going, I will do this. I am gonna rock this thing. <laughs> I wanna take a look at that last, one of those phrases in there where he says, the desire of nations, your translation may say, or the treasure of nations will come in. This is actually a pretty controversial passage and Hebrew scholars are kind of divided into two camps. So if you will nerd out with me for just a moment, it's going to be fun for me. <clears throat> so the first group, they say this about this text. They say, well, the treasures of nations, what that really means is like silver and gold and stuff. Okay? And so the treasures of all the nations are going to come in here, which means that this temple is going to look really good. The second group of scholars say, no, it, that's actually a pretty bad translation. Spoiler alert, I'm, I'm with these guys. They say, you actually should translate it, the, the desire of nations, the treasure of nations, like the object itself, what nations want, something that every nation wants. It's not stuff, it's actually a thing. If you push it a little further, it's actually a person. Something, someone that all nations want. There's a craving in the world for something that everybody wants to have a piece of. Now looking back on this side of the cross, that's starting to sound an awful lot like Jesus, isn't it? You see how so much of the Old Testament, like even here in this obscure like little back corner of the attic, is shot through with Jesus. He's everywhere. I will shake the heavens. I will shake all nations. I will build this house. You notice the theme? God will bring someone to accomplish something that his people cannot do on their own. The gospel much? But our pride doesn't like that. Because here's what we do. Okay, here's what I do. I go, you know what? I don't want to grab hold of, like, God's power. I'd rather just grab hold of my ability, what I want to do, right? Because I can fix this. I know best. Like, I know how to navigate this thing. I'm good. Like, I don't need that. Do you want to know why we try to do what only God can do? You're not going to like this. Because... We try to be who only God can be. And it gets worse. We only try to be who God can be because we want the glory that only God deserves. It's just called pride. It's the same thing over and over and over again. You can either have a powerful God or you can have personal autonomy. You cannot have both. Remember that footprints poem? It's like a big Christian thing, like back in the 70s and 80s, and it was on like greeting cards and plaques and Afghans and everywhere, right? And you remember how the thing goes, right? There's a guy walking on the beach with God, and like there's two sets of footprints, but then every once in a while there's only one set of footprints, because that's the time when God, what? So you know this, right? Quaint notion, terrible theology. Here's why. There's always only ever been one set of footprints because God has been carrying me around for 38 years now. Where did I get the idea that I could ever take one step without his power? When did I not need to be carried? And why would I even want that kind of existence anyway? If I ever get to a point in my life where I look over my shoulder and go, well, that was the season I didn't need God to carry me. That was the season when I didn't do anything that mattered at all. 
You and I and God's people are 100% dependent 100% of the time. Now, we don't like that, but that's the way it is. And it's always that way with God, right? Moses couldn't speak well. Doesn't matter. God used him. David, insecure man-child with massive superiority problems. Jesus' leadership team, fickle, faithless fishermen. But Jesus uses them anyway. We are not that great, and that is great. Because when we put ourselves in a dependent posture under his power, then the only reason why our life does anything good is traceable back to him. I said this last week. It's, it's kind of like a theme in Haggai. I do not want a life that I can explain. This isn't the story of just the temple being built, but this is the story of God's people. This is us. Listen to how Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Like, just pick up on this language. It's really, really good. Brothers, think about what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were noble birth. But God, see that again? Like, two words that change everything. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Why? Here's what Paul says. So that no one may boast before him. So if you're chasing influence and you're chasing, like, he's like, no, stop it. Rest in God's power. Don't seek power for yourself. It's a dry well. Don't go there. So that's the second way to keep your perspective right. Remember God's power. Third way to keep your perspective right. Remember God's plan. Take a look in verse 9. This is my favorite part. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. That is an audacious statement for this audience to hear. Because they knew what Solomon's temple was about, and God's going, nothing. Here's why. In this place, I will give peace. That phrase is incredibly powerful. He's talking about the temple itself. He's saying, in the place of this temple, in this space that you're going to build, I will give my peace. That word give is otherwise translated as give up or yield or hand over. It's a sacrificial term that's tied to offerings. Now get this. This temple that these people are working on is causing so much discouragement and doubt. This temple, this modest little construction site stacked with piles of building materials on the ground, this temple that would be completed within a few years after Haggai stopped, This is the same temple that Jesus walked in. This is the same temple that he overturned the tables. This is the same temple where the curtain was torn in two on Good Friday, 500 years later. So when God says, in this place, I will give my peace, who's the peace? It's Jesus. Man, I'm glad the artist knows what he's doing. It's like God saying, you thought this was great before. You haven't seen anything yet. I'm going to do something in this place that's beyond anything Solomon ever dreamed of. You think I'm done? Watch me. Someone's right around this corner that is going to shake this place to the floor. 
and every nation is going to get a chunk of this. I'm stepping in. You're going to call me God with us, Emmanuel. Every nation is going to get rocked because I'm getting what I've always wanted, restoration, not of a building, but of a people. And it's all going to go down right where you're standing. Just you watch. How gracious is God's response there? I mean, his people are whining like a bunch of two-year-olds. And then God gives them a glimpse into his redemptive plan from all history. How good is God? Here's the point. There is a direct connection between what you hope in and what you work on. There's a direct connection between what you hope in and what you work on. Whether it's a construction site in 522 B.C. or whether it's a table at Starbucks in Canton, Ohio in 2019, right? What you hope in, where you place your hope is where you will spend your life. There's a direct connection between what you hope in and what you work on. And so if you hope in small things, right, you're going to work on small things. And at the end of your life, you're going to go... But if you give yourself away and you hope in big things, things that last, things that will outlast you, a legacy that will go far beyond your life even after you stop breathing, you give yourself over to that, you get to the end of your life, you go, whoa. We say it all the time over here. We say, we want to be the church, how's it go? Who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone. Here's what that doesn't mean, okay? It's really kind of frightening to think about what that doesn't mean because it means a whole lot. <laughs> it means I don't get to be the person who makes much of Brandon every day to everyone. Right? It means I don't get to be the person who makes much of Jesus on Sundays and at my Bible studies. I don't get to be the person who makes much of Jesus only to people who I like or who I think I could like or who share my political opinion or who share the way that I think. doesn't mean that. I want to be the church who makes much of Jesus every day to everyone. And what that means is I have thoughtfully considered the value of my life, and I have considered it worth nothing, except I could testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is Paul talking right there. That's Acts chapter 20, and he says it just like that. Couldn't you really say that? Can you say, I count my life worth nothing? Except if I can make much of Jesus every day to everyone. That's what keeps me up. That's what puts me down. It's the first thought of my head in the morning. It's the last one when I go lay my head down at night. And that's what he's getting at here. Because all those other things, you know, maybe it's God's plan. Maybe not. But I know one thing that definitely is God's plan. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Making Jesus known among people who don't know him yet. And see, that's grace. Not just that we're saved, like, yay, awesome. That's good. Not just that you're saved, but that you have work to do. Same here. Be strong, work, fear not. Be strong, work, fear not. My presence and my power and my plan are going before you. God has placed you where you are individually and as a church with mind-boggling intentionality. It is not an accident. So that's the third way to keep your perspective right is to remember God's plan. So let's put the magnifying glass down just for a bit. 
Because these people are still facing some very real discouragement and they're facing some very real challenges and doubt. What is their role in following God this season? That's next week. Scandal and hilarity. From up close, the artist is either as crazy as a loon or he's playing a cruel joke. You can't be serious. This, this is what you fought for. This is what you're planning. But you back up and you see the artist's grand design. And you just might get it. Let me pray. God, we do say thank you for your goodness. To know that you are the same God who can come alongside your people and encourage them with these very old, timeless, ageless truths. God, I believe that you want to speak those same truths to our hearts this morning. So would you do that? You promised that you're never going to leave us. You're never going to forsake us. It's not who you are. And so when we are filled with doubt and discouragement, when we want to believe what we see, what we feel, what others say, or what we deserve, God, would you press your gospel so deep into our hearts that we can't stop talking about you and what you've done. Father, we love you. We say thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.